Go ahead and open your Bible with me to John chapter 8, okay, as we continue our series here, Encountering Jesus. And as we open our Bibles to John chapter 8, um, I have to make a caveat before I preach this message today, okay? And the caveat is similar to something that I said last week or the week before about the honesty of the New Testament uh, before us. And you will find, if you open your Bible, particularly if you have one of the old-fashioned kind made of papyrus, you will see that in the footnote, there is a, there is a note above chapter 8 in my ESV translation that tells you honestly that there are some scholars and there is good evidence to believe that the story that we're going to look at today may not have been in the original autograph of John's gospel, okay? So I want to be honest with you this morning as we look at that passage, that may be the case. In fact, there are many scholars that I respect that presume that that probably is the case, that this was added later, that it does seem to be historical, does seem to be traditional in the terms of what Jesus would teach, but it may not have appeared in the original penning Uh, of John's gospel, okay? I have chosen to go ahead and preach it today, uh, but I want to give you that caveat. And I also want to let you know, don't be fearful about these kind of things. That may be the first time you've ever heard that, okay? But it's right there in print in your scripture. Uh, It's the biggest chunk of scripture that there's debate about in the New Testament. Let me be honest about that. The second piece of scripture that's the largest is the ending of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16. I don't have time to go into that today. Uh, What I would love for you to do is ask some questions about that. And what I would love for you to do, if that bothers you, if you're confused, if you want more information about that, I would love for you to contact me, grab me afterwards, email me, set up coffee, whatever, so we can talk about how the scriptures were put together and how we can trust them as authoritative and how, how that all works, okay? But it wouldn't be uh, authentic of me, it wouldn't be honest of me uh, to proceed without giving you that background this morning, okay? So we're going to look at it, and if you have questions, please uh, come and talk to me, okay? Find me. Don't walk away flustered or frustrated or really confused. That's caveat number one. Caveat number two is you may have some other questions after this sermon this morning because it's a bit of an unusual topic for Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, by the way. Um, But I'm going to use this passage this morning because I think as as this passage speaks about sexual sin, I'm going to use this passage this morning to talk about the issues of our day. And so right out of the gate, okay, I want to offer to you, and these are listed on the CC app under today's sermon. So if you want these resources, uh, they're available that you can go look to them afterwards. But it won't be appropriate later in the sermon for me to bring out these resources. So I want to bring out a couple of them right now as we get into these topics, okay? The topics, modern topics today, being the idea of homosexuality and transgenderism, okay? I'm going to use this passage to talk about how we kind of approach and think about those tangly issues that are right 
in our face and amongst us in 2019, okay? So there are many resources. I just have a few of them, and these are going to be out. Some of them are going to be out at the Connection Center afterwards if you want to grab them for just a donation of five bucks. Okay, two of them. Uh, One is on short little books. You can see thin little books. One of them is on homosexuality, and one of them is on transgenderism, okay? Both of these books happen to be written by Christian, Orthodox Christian believers who call themselves evangelicals who also struggle with same-sex attraction, okay? That's the authors of these books, um, one of them being Sam Alberry, who's a, has a pastor in England. But five bucks, another uh, one that I want to recommend to you, and I've listened to this one on podcast interviews, but Caleb Kaltenbach, this book is called Messy Grace, And Caleb is a friend of a friend, and I've heard his story, but Caleb is a pastor today, and uh, we attended the same seminary. He's a friend of a friend, but Caleb grew up the son of a homosexual father and a lesbian mother, and he has a fascinating story and how that formed him, how he was taken to gay pride marches as a young child, how he experienced Christians as a young child, and it's a powerful story. It's called Messy Grace. Okay, and then the next one, again, uh, there's other resources. There's, there's websites. If you go to the recommended resources on today's sermon, okay, you can find them all there, all right? That's on the CC app. Uh, the final one I want to recommend to you is one by Kevin DeYoung. The title of it is called, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? Okay, and it also is relatively thin, uh, our elders have all read Kevin DeYoung's book. Kevin is a pastor, an author of many books, and now a seminary professor in North Carolina. And more important than all of that stuff is that he's married to my cousin Trish, okay? So, uh, so I like him. He's always, uh, he's always tonally very fair, uh, even keel balanced, and I commend Kevin DeYoung, pretty much anything that he's written uh, to you. Okay, so those are some resources. Again, I wanted to put it right out front. Some of you are sweating right now. Some of you are more nervous than I am, but we need to talk about this passage and we need to talk about these issues as they come up relevant to the text that we have before us. Okay, so that's caveat number two. And also, plea number two would be Just like the question about John's gospel in chapter 8 about this topic, I don't want you to leave here this morning angry, frustrated, um, questioning anything without conversation, okay? So some of the things that we present here may be difficult for you. You may outright disagree, and I just want to encourage you... uh, talk with us, okay? Grab me, grab one of our elders. You can always contact us, elders at centennialchurch.com. But uh, please, don't uh, just avoid, don't run, don't have questions in your mind without talking about it, without engaging about it, okay? So let me pray uh, again as we look into God's Word and pray for myself and for us as um, as we proceed. Father, we come to you this morning because you are the great God. You are our good, good Father. We believe that. We trust that. I pray that you would help us trust that more, that we would love you more, trust you more. 
Holy Spirit, as we open the scriptures this morning, we pray that you would do the work of conviction, not the preacher, but Holy Spirit, you would work and you would comfort where we need comfort and you would challenge where we need challenge, God, and you would be with me, that you would be at the hearts of everyone here, you would be with the hearts of our loved ones and friends as we think through these things. Jesus, thank you for loving sinners, sinners like us, sinners that are different than us, but all sinners. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for loving, for dying on the cross, for having victory as we sung over the grave. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So by way of introduction, let me go back a few decades and quote one Homer Simpson. Okay? I knew there'd be a couple fans out here. But uh, there's this episode of The Simpsons where Homer is reading his Bible to his kids. And as he's reading the Bible, Homer makes this observation. He says, everyone in this book is a mess except this one guy. Man, Homer hits the nail on the head on that one. Everyone in this book is a mess except for this one guy. This one guy, of course, being Jesus. The Bible is full of messed up people. If you haven't heard that here before, I'm sorry, but hopefully you've had, if you've been around this series already, Encountering Jesus, you see that every week we've looked at someone that has encountered Jesus, and every person that encounters Jesus is messed up. So just a quick survey of John's gospel, all the way back in John chapter 1, the first kind of person that's prominent in John's gospel is this guy named John the Baptist. And what does John the Baptist say in relationship to Jesus? He says, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. And later in Matthew's gospel, we find out that John the Baptist is so confused, is so messed up, is so perplexed in his faith that in chapter 11, he says, would you please go and ask Jesus if he's really the one, if he's really the Savior? Now think about that. This is the forerunner of Jesus. This is a prophet just before Jesus that's proclaiming the way of the Lord. And he, in chapter 11 of Matthew, is like, is this really the guy? He's messed up. Now, we didn't talk about chapter 2 of John's gospel, but in chapter 2, there's this wonderful episode where Jesus just gets ticked off. He goes into the temple and he he finds these religious leaders, these money changers, making money on religion. So what does he do? He overturns the tables. He gets ticked off. Why? Because these religious people are messed up. They're defaming religion. They're defaming Yahweh. Move on to chapter 3. In chapter 3, we meet this really upstanding guy named Nicodemus, but we find out that this upstanding, respected guy is also messed up. So he comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus says, you're so confused, you don't even understand earthly things. How could you possibly understand eternal or heavenly things. Religious guy messed up. Fast forward chapter four, we have this irreligious woman, or she actually has a religious bent, but she's a Samaritan woman. That's, we don't know her name. We find out she has had five husbands and the guy that she's living with now is not her husband. She's scandalous. And Jesus shows her amazing grace and amazing love, not for someone who deserves it, But for someone who doesn't deserve it, for someone who is a mess, Sam Alberry, that author and that 
pastor in England that I told you about uh, earlier, he says that when he came to faith, struggling as he was with these same-sex desires, that when he heard this preacher preach, he said a light bulb went off. The Holy Spirit used this sentence that this preacher said, and what the preacher said was, Christianity is not about God rewarding good people or congratulating the good people. Christianity is about God extending grace to bad people, to messed up people. And again, that's what we find in chapter 8 of John's gospel. Again, a messed up person. This is the woman caught in adultery. It's a famous story. You probably all heard it. But again, we find someone in need of God's grace. So we echo Homer Simpson this morning. Everyone in this book is messed up, save one. Furthermore, everyone in this room is messed up, save none. But the good news is we have a Savior who comes. We have a Savior who died for messy people, for messy people sinful, rebellious people. So this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to look at this passage and I want us to look at three things. I want us to, I've entitled today's sermon, Grace and Truth for Our Cultural Moment. Grace and Truth for Our Cultural Moment. And here's where we're going to go. First of all, I want to look at our cultural moment. And then I want to look at this story and see grace. And then I want to see truth. Okay, so that's where we're going. First of all, our cultural moment. What do I mean by that? Well, let's just dialogue for a second actually here. How would you describe, okay, how would you describe our cultural moment? Anyone? Insane, I think I heard, okay. Confused, thank you. Someone over here? Messed up, thank you. There's one word that I'm thinking that divisive, divided, is it not? Are we not polarized as much as a culture has ever been? Red and blue, rich and poor, black and white, racially, politically, are we not divided? Are we not morally confused? Are we also not uncivil? I mean, just turn on the radio turn on the talk shows, turn on the news programs, whichever cable news is your preferred one, but it's, it's not civil. There's opinions, and there's anger, and there's a lot of rage, and there's a lot of talking, and people that disagree with me. Now, we're, there, our moment is, is not just that we have disagreements, it's that people that disagree with me are not just people that disagree with me, but they're enemies, That's our cultural moment and the cultural moment of confusion around the issues like sexuality, around issues like gender. And Jesus has something to say to this, and he shows us in this passage how to walk this road. Compare our cultural moment well, we just said now with the cultural moment of Jesus' day, the first century. What do we have then? Political division. 
pluralism. I didn't mention that one about our cult, but lots of different ways, lots of different truths, lots of different religious worldviews, right? So you have this Jewish worldview, and you have it contrasted with this Greco-Roman worldview, where there was a lot of sexual perversion and lots of different ways of thinking. And in the Jewish worldview, you've had these passages that we looked at in John, where, where people are just wanting to give capital punishment and, and kill those who won't observe the Sabbath correctly. But then in the, Roman, in the Greco-Roman culture, you have people that will be killed, ostracized, perhaps beaten, killed, if they don't pay homage, if they don't worship Caesar. So, division, pluralism, relativism about truth, about religious truth, about moral truth. So here's the good news. Amidst that difficulty, we have an opportunity as the people of God, as the followers of Jesus, to model a better way. A way that's not just anger, a way that's not divisive, a way that I hate my enemies or everyone that disagrees with me is my enemy, but a way that says there is truth and there is grace and there is the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is not secular liberalism nor political conservatism. But the way of Jesus is something different and something massively needed in our culture today. That's where we sit. And that's the beauty of what we see Jesus do here in this passage. Though difficult, beautiful. So let's look for a moment at Jesus' grace. So we haven't read yet, but verses 2 through 7, read along with me, follow along with me. Verses 2 through 7, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And we'll stop right there for now. So the situation is obvious here. As John narrates it, Jesus is teaching. People are gathering, verse 2, around him. And that was the the common thing that happened to Jesus. He was such an amazing rabbi, such an amazing teacher that people would always gather around him. And not just the religious people, but the outcast all over and over again. The outcast and the sinners and the drunkards are, feel somehow at peace sitting at the feet of Jesus. People are, this is the grace that he exudes. So missing from the religious people, from evangelical Christians often today, the grace that has people of all walks of life interested to hear what this rabbi has to say. And as this woman caught in shame, where's her partner? 
Where is he? We are not told. But this woman brought to the, around in front of Jesus as her accusers circle around her. She's brought and see the grace that Jesus has for her that he brings the attention on himself. He takes the attention off this woman who is shamed and he brings the attention to himself. How does he do that? He, because he stoops down and he begins, he says, to write in the ground. He's taking the eyes off this shamed woman and putting the eyes on himself. What is he writing in the ground? We don't know. We're not told. And commentators and scholars have speculated about this all over the place. Is he writing the Ten Commandments? Is he writing the names of the accusers in the ground? Is he writing the names of other women that these men have been with? We don't know. But whatever he's doing, he's taking the attention off this woman and putting it onto himself as he will take our sin and put it on himself so that he would bear our guilt, so that he would bear our shame. We're told that their motive here was not pure, verse 6. They want to test Jesus. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to catch him because they've caught this woman. But Jesus here now is catching them. Catching them after they've caught this woman. So we might ask the question here as you look at this story, who's caught in sin? Who's caught in sin? Well, on the face of it, you think the woman is caught in sin. But as you look into Jesus' movements here, Jesus' actions here, who's caught in sin? Not just the woman, but all of them. She's been caught in sinful unrighteousness, and Jesus has now caught them in their sinful self-righteousness. So he asks, let him, or he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He moves the attention away from her, puts it on himself. He moves the, the conversation away from her guilt to their guilt away from her sinfulness to their self-righteousness, which is sinful. And the only one here who's qualified to condemn her doesn't. The only one here qualified to throw a stone doesn't throw a stone instead shows her this amazing grace. He's gracious towards sinners, towards messy people, and messy people like us and messy people who are messy in different ways than you and I are messy. He's gracious. He's forgiving. He's patient. And yet, he's uncompromising. So not only do we see the grace here, but we also see the truth. So let's read verses 8 through 11. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. 
But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, we see grace here. Jesus continues to deal with the woman. We see his grace continued. We, we see when we think about this passage, the thing that most people remember from this story, from my perspective, the thing that most people remember from this story is that line from Jesus where he says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. I bet that's probably the first words that you remember when you think about Jesus in this story. It's powerful. But also, what we must not forget is Jesus' last words in this story, which is not just, neither do I condemn you, but notice he says, and from now on, sin no more. He calls her out as a sinner while extending forgiveness to the sinner. He says, I'm not going to condemn you, but what you're doing is wrong. This, this is sin, but I tell you, go and sin no more. What was shocking in Jesus' day is that Jesus let her go free. That was shocking. You know what I think is shocking in our day? What I know is shocking in our day is for Jesus to tell someone in sexual sin, don't sin anymore. Shocking. You're making a judgment about someone's behavior, about their preferences, about their sexuality. But here Jesus is saying, he is drawing a line and he's saying, this is sin, but sin no more. Jesus is compassionate while maintaining his conviction. He is not condemning sinners nor condoning sin. He is neither throwing stones nor throwing out Scripture. As John chapter 1, verse 14 says, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Both. Grace and truth. Not half and half, not 50-50, but full of grace and truth. So we have some issues in our day. And they're hot topics, and they're divisive topics, and they're topics that confuse, and they're topics that bring heat without a lot of light. And I think, based upon this text and others, that if Jesus is teaching us how to deal with these issues, this is what he wants to keep before us. Compassion as well as conviction. Don't throw stones and don't throw out Scripture. Because the easy thing to do is what? The easy thing to do is slide off on one direction or the other. To slide off 
to secular relativism, liberalism that just says, hey, all is good. Make your own choices. I'm okay, you're okay. Do what you want. Do what makes you happy. That's easy. That is an easy position to say and it's an easy position to maintain. On the other end of the spectrum is not relativistic liberalism, moralistic relativism, but on the other end of the spectrum is just religious judgmentalism. Harsh judgmentalism. And Jesus is not in either one of these camps. He, he is not with the liberals of his day and he is not with the religious establishment of his day saying throw a stone at her. He is walking the way of Jesus. He is walking in grace and truth. He is having conviction with compassion. And this is the beauty of Jesus, and this is the opportunity we have in 2019 to say, you know what? God created people, male and female. That's true. And so we need to talk about what it means to be human and what it means to have gender. To be a person made in the image of God but also come into this world as a broken sinner. So that every person we meet bears the image of God because they're human. They have God's image stamped upon them. Something beautiful about every person we meet. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, that you meet no little people. Every person we engage, every person who we agree with, every person we disagree with has the image of God in them. And every person we meet, save Jesus, comes into this world sinful, messed up, and bent towards badness and perversion. Now, I'm careful with the words that I choose here because I think we have to have two categories. We have to have the category of sin, and Christians are real good about the category of sin. We believe in sin. The world has heard that. But we also, I think, have to have a category as people post-Genesis 3 of suffering and brokenness. And part of our brokenness is that we come into this world and environmentally, genetically, by upbringing, each of us, though, have sin in common, we have unique challenges in our bentness or our sinful nature. So let's talk about orientation a little bit. Some of us are oriented, if I can use that language, towards alcoholism. I think we can say that there are people that are born with a bent, with an orientation towards being alcoholics. 
And if they play to that orientation, they will end up in a bad spot. Some of us are oriented towards anger. We just came into this world with that type of propensity. Our depravity moves that way. Some of us have come into the world and our bentness, our suffering, our brokenness expresses itself in depression and anxiety. And that's kind of just in our makeup. It's in our brokenness. It's, it's part of this thing that is broken, sinful humanity. And so it's a brokenness to us, but if we lean into it, the Bible has some things to say about worry and anxiety and about our attitude, right? And I don't know why it's happening, but in 2019, we got some things that are showing up more than they used to. And I can't tell you why, but what I think I can say clearly from Scripture is though we're all sinners, we deal with sin in various forms and kinds. And so all that to say, when we are dealing with some confusion in ourself, or we're dealing with someone we love who's confused about gender, who's confused about their sexuality, we have to think with two categories. Sin, but not just only sin, also suffering and brokenness. Because I can tell you from my experience talking to some friends of mine that struggle with homosexuality, same-sex attraction, this is not something that they feel like they chose. It's a part of their unique brokenness, their unique struggle as image bearers of God and sinners. So what I propose is while all the intricacies and all the technicalities are difficult, we have to follow in the way of Jesus, no matter what the issue Okay, whether it's adultery or whether it's gender or sexuality or whatever, we have to follow in the way of Jesus in offering grace and at the same time being uncompromising with the truth. And let me tell you this, it is a lot easier for me to stand up here and preach this than it is for me to practice it in the day-to-day and with someone sitting in front of me. And I'm not sure when to put the brakes on grace or truth or how to, how to do both of those at the same time. Jesus did it perfectly, but I'm not Jesus. But what I'm begging, what I'm calling us to do is to try our best with the help of Holy Spirit to walk in grace and truth with sinners of all kinds. Because left to ourselves, we'll fall way over here to just liberal relativism, or some of us, again by temperament, will fall way over here to religious judgmentalism, Phariseeism. So I love the words of Pastor Ray Ortland 
who says this. He says, left to ourselves, we'll get it partly wrong. But we won't feel wrong because we'll be partly right. But only partly. So you see what he's saying here? Man, I believe in the Bible. This is what the Bible says. It's right here in black and white. Why can't you just see what the Bible says? Hey, you're right. And you feel right. But you're partly right. Because there's other parts of the Bible. There's grace and truth. Perfect in Jesus, progressing in you and me. So let's hear it from an old dead guy named Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon said this, Truth is not in the middle and not in one extreme, but in both extremes. Not in the middle Not in one extreme or the other extreme, but in both extremes. And in Jesus, we have compassion and conviction. We have extravagant grace and unchanging truth. And so now we figure out day to day and loved one to loved one, neighbor to neighbor, sister to sister, how to walk this way of Jesus. And it ain't going to be easy. So let me summarize with just two summary statements, okay? Two summary statements, and then we're going to pray together this morning. Number one, even with the best intentions and approach, expect to be misunderstood or rejected, okay? Even with the best of intentions and approach, expect to be misunderstood. Don't expect the world to embrace you. What I'm saying up here this morning is not a PR stint uh, that's supposed to ensure the world's favor for us. They did not embrace Jesus. They misunderstood Jesus. They will not understand us. They will not embrace us always. Even in our best efforts, we will be misunderstood. They'll sometimes assume that we are condemning, and sometimes our compassion with sinners will be construed by church folk as condoning sin. We will be misunderstood. Expect for this to be messy. Number two, put down the stones and pick up the scriptures. Put down the stones and pick up the scriptures. Drop self-righteous condemnation and develop scriptural, scriptural convictions. Not the convictions of the world, not the convictions of the religious right, but scriptural convictions. Not popularity polls, opinion polls, but hang on to the truth and lose the harshness, the self-righteousness. Don't take your cues from a lost culture or from legalistic religion. This is tough. It's tough. But it's good. And it's right. And it's beautiful. And the easy options are over here and over here. But the Spirit guided, Jesus modeled, God given way is right here with Jesus.
hey, I love you. I want to struggle with you. I want to dialogue with you. We want to come together and talk about these ways, these things in ways that are civil and gracious and committed to what God has revealed. Amen? So here's the way I'd like us to close. Typically, I pray for us in closing this morning. I want to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to do a responsive prayer. I want you to pray with me. I'll pray the parts that say leader, and you pray the parts with me that say all. Okay, so go ahead and stand with me as we pray. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess with shame that there are times I have stood in the midst condemned. And there are times I have stood in the crowd condemning. There are times in my heart that has been filled with adultery, and there are times my hands have been filled with stones. Forgive me for a heart that is so prone to wonder, so quick to forget my vows to you. Forgive me, too, for my eagerness in bringing you the sins of others and my reluctance in bringing you my own. Forgive me, Lord, for the times that I have stood smugly, pharisaic, and measured out judgment to others, others I'm not qualified to judge, others who you, though qualified, refuse to. Help me to be more like you, Jesus, full of grace and truth. Help me to live not by law, but by grace, by the spirit of compassion you showed to that woman so many mornings ago. Give me, I pray, the pierced conscience of the older ones in regard to my stumblings, of others so that my hands may be first to drop their stones and my feet first to leave the circle of the self-righteous. Thank you for the sweet words of forgiveness. Neither do I condemn you. We lost it. The last slide there. There you go. Thank you for the sweet words of forgiveness. Neither do I condemn you. Words that flow so freely from your lips. Words that I have heard so often when I have stumbled. And in the strength of those unmerited words, help me to go my way and sin no more. Amen. Lord Jesus, help us. Amen.